Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, I know we've done a little warning before every episode, but just a heads up, this week's story delves deeper into a specific account of sexual violence. If that's something that's upsetting to you, please take care while you're listening. What did you think when I first called you and started texting you? Complete terror. Yeah, it's always really frightening. Over the 20 years, every time I saw a journalist's name pop up in my inbox, there would always be a moment of complete blind terror. For 20 years, Rowena Chu lived in fear of talking about her allegation that Harvey Weinstein tried to rape her when she was his assistant in the late 90s. And then, about two and a half years ago, she started getting calls from me and other reporters. I remember hiding in my bathroom with my very young baby, who was only six months old, and speaking in hushed whispers as though we were keeping paranoid secrets of the Saudi government. Hmm. You know, it was really still quite frightening. Rowena declined to talk to me or any other reporter back in 2017. She only started talking about this all publicly this fall. Sometimes I'm asked in interviews, why did it take you such a long time to come forward with your story? You know, the New Yorker and the New York Times broke it in October 2017, and you didn't speak until September 2019. That's almost two whole years. What were you doing in those two whole years, and why did it take you so long to come forward with your story? This is the Catch and Kill podcast. I'm Ronan Farrow. For most of this series, we've been focusing on the people who helped break stories. The whistleblowers, the women who shared their stories of abuse. But so many more decided not to go public, at least at first. There are a lot of complicated reasons for that. There are legal and professional and cultural pressures that keep people silent. And the silence can take a toll over the years, an often hidden toll. Few people understand those pressures, that dilemma, more intimately than Rowena Chu. It's a very new chapter for me, so it's a, um, still getting used to having found my voice and um, telling my story in sort of many different forums. 
What you're hearing is the first time Rowena and I ever met this fall. Why don't we just start at, at the beginning? It was at a studio in New York with her extremely adorable toddler watching Thomas the Tank Engine in the next room. I was born in the UK and I grew up uh, to Chinese parents about an hour outside of London. So I'm British-born Chinese. The idea that you just don't talk about sexual violence is something that runs through a lot of cultures around the world. Chinese families typically don't talk about things um, like sexual assault. Yes. not the sort of subject that people want to address over dinner, any culture, any race, any generation, really. But I think in certain generations and certain societal situations, it is more difficult to speak about than in others. I've spoken very much about how in Asian culture, both publicly and privately, there's a sense of one doesn't complain. We're a model minority, we sort of get on, mm. we work hard, we don't complain about things. Rowena got her start as a theater kid. I was president of Oxford University Drama Society, and I produced and directed about 30 plays during my time at Oxford. So theater was wonderful, and it was my first love. But, you know, it's hard to make it in theater long term. And so when I left Oxford, I fairly quickly transitioned over to film and television. Rowena was 24 years old when she applied for a job as a junior assistant at Miramax, Harvey Weinstein's production company. It was 1998, and Miramax was one of the hottest studios in the world. In the past few years, they had released Pulp Fiction and The English Patient. And that year, they would release Shakespeare in Love. It was the small and feisty film company that everybody wanted to join. It was also particularly appealing because it sat at that juxtaposition between kind of art house and commercial, mm -hmm. which was that kind of beautiful formula that everyone was trying to crack. So one day in July, Rowena headed to Soho in central London and walked into the Miramax offices. I climbed up three flights of stairs and I met Zelda Perkins, who was in the middle of a tiny room crammed with cardboard boxes and towers of movie scripts. Zelda Perkins was a senior assistant at Miramax in London. Senior, relatively speaking. She was also only 24 years old. To be in the enclave of somebody that powerful, um, you know, was very exciting. That's Perkins in a recent BBC interview. In 1998, she'd been with Miramax for a few years and had seen plenty of junior assistants come and go. She told Rowena the job would be challenging. She told me about the travel and she told me about the exhaustion. And she told me about the difficulty of the job, that it's a roller coaster, that you get calls from New York at three in the morning to say he's coming over by Concord, and you'll go off to some European film festival. You know, to me, a couple of years out of college, it definitely sounded glamorous and alluring. Did she warn you at any point about Harvey and the potential for harassment? Uh, she was very clear in her interview that Harvey was very difficult to deal with. So uh, she took pains to explain that I was to handle him robustly. You didn't know when he was going to lose his temper. There would be requests for massages and inappropriate talk. And so I think so all of us So she said that explicitly, that, that there be... was going to be some kind of a sexual component to this difficulty. Right. You know, assistants at Miramax who felt that he was like a little bit of a pest, you know, he's a pain in the neck with demands for massages and things. It's another step to believing that the boss that you work for is a serial rapist who holds dozens of women against their will to beds and walls. If you are going into a situation where you believe you're going to be raped, nobody takes that job on. So 
So did you accept the job immediately or did it require some contemplation? Not at all. I accepted the job immediately. In the room or did she come back to you? In the room. And from there, what did the process look like? 1998, a courier by bike arrived with a mobile phone. <laughs> and back in those days in 98, a mobile phone was like a brick. And so I took the thing out of the box with some reverence, <laughs> thinking, you know, this is a powerful office. Right. FedEx me a mobile phone. <laughs> Do you remember your first day on the job? I remember clearly the first day of meeting Harvey. He had flown to London for a screening of Shakespeare in Love. And so we had all gathered at a small screening room in Soho um, to see the latest cut for Shakespeare in Love. It was still early in the job, and Rowena wasn't entirely sure what to expect. I'd been briefed in the taxi on the way to the screening that I should do exactly what Harvey asked of me. Which seemed simple enough until she got there. One of the first tasks that he gave me was to sit in front of him in this very small screening room in Soho. He sat on in the middle of the second row, and he asked me to sit directly in front of him. I, you know, I was very aware that there were other seats in the room. There were about six of us, and there were about 30 seats, and it seemed ridiculous. So I was sitting right in front of him, right. blocking his view. So I got up to move, just one seat across, and I immediately was yelled at. Yelled at by Weinstein. In a pretty brutal and violent way because I didn't follow instructions. The irony is I was actually acting in a way to try to make Harvey's path smoother, as in to make the experience of watching the screening easier. It's only way later, 20 years later, that I saw that episode as a hazing, in the sense that it's a test. Harvey enjoys people who push back just enough to stand up for themselves, but not so much so that they have enough self-respect not to do the job. It's complicated, but a lot of people who worked with Weinstein will say it. Despite his aggression, he could make people feel valued, special. That was the case with Rowena, even after that first screening. He definitely had a certain charm. And the problem is that it is no longer fashionable to talk about a predator in the same sentence as charm. But I think it's important to understand that because people don't understand why we were there the carrot as well as the stick. He made you feel like anything was possible. He made it feel like you would go really far in this industry. You know, you're super bright. You're from Oxford. You know, you can do anything you want with your life. You know, what do you want to be? Do you want to be a writer? Do you want to be a producer? And I think for somebody who has recently graduated full of dreams, that is very compelling. And I think the points at which this was the most powerful is when he's on his own with you. One of the first times Rowena was alone with Weinstein was about two months after she started the job. It was September 1998. She and Perkins had flown to Italy to meet Weinstein for the Venice Film Festival. The festival takes place on this long, thin island detached from the city itself. Festival goers can take swims between screenings. Rowena's days began around 10 a.m., and they were long days. Reading scripts, dealing with the logistics around Weinstein's meetings, responding to his various requests at any given moment. Perkins, as the first, more senior assistant, would go to the fancy evening events with Weinstein. Whereas I, as the second assistant, stayed back in the hotel room, preparing for Harvey and Zelda to come back at around 10. Zelda would make sure that Harvey had what he needed for the night, uh, and I would begin that sort of second late-night shift. A shift that lasted until around 2 a.m. The first day went according to schedule, with Weinstein returning to the suite around 10 p.m. But what made that night notable is not what happened, 
It's the context in which those things happened. The evening always starts with a speech about how he's completely exhausted. And that is an excuse to kind of disrobe and take off his clothes and, you know, for him get in a position where he is more comfortable. Harvey was naked when Zelda was in the room with him. Harvey had Zelda take dictation when he was in the nude. He wandered around without trousers with everybody. To anyone on the outside, that might seem crazy. A boss wandering around giving dictation naked. But within the tight circle around Weinstein, it was so routine, it had become normalized. And I think what happens as assistants is you unfortunately implicitly absorb a culture that isn't necessarily explicitly explained to you. You think, oh, oh, that's okay. He's far too important to wear trousers. Rowena says Weinstein did make advances on her that first day, but she deflected them and they got the work done. She went back to her room to sleep when her shift ended around 2 a.m. Around 10 p.m. the second or third night, Rowena was waiting for Weinstein back in his hotel room to follow up on the day's work. It was not dissimilar to the first night. He comes back from the event that he's attended with Zelda. Zelda makes sure he's comfortable for the night she leaves. He said how he was exhausted by the event of that evening. He took his clothes off. Rowena remembers the conversation being professional at first. He started by asking about the scripts she'd read that day which legitimizes the conversation that Mm -hmm. we're about to have. So we talk a bit about the scripts that I've read. I'm eager to explain which ones I think are good and which ones I think are not good and why. But things got uncomfortable quickly. There were requests for massages. He asked me to massage him. He asked to massage me. He said that he was more comfortable wearing less clothes. He was more comfortable naked. He said I had too many clothes on. Weinstein's assistants would sometimes joke about wearing extra layers when spending time with him. On this night, Rowena was intentionally wearing two pairs of tights. So he asked me, could he take off a pair of tights? You know, I must be hot in the two pairs of tights, or I'm still wearing my jacket, and it's too warm in the room to be wearing my jacket, so why don't I take off my jacket? Rowena was in this incredibly difficult position. He's a big man, and he, as we saw, could get extremely angry. So I felt it would be physically dangerous for me if I made him angry. She says she did take off one pair of tights to appease him, but she was clear that she was saying no to any kind of intimacy. I'm saying, um, no, I really think it's, it's getting late, and I think you're really tired, and you've got to get up really early, and I've got to go and see Zelda. So there's a sort of, there's his own subversive power play going on in the room where you're not outrightly screaming, I'm going to get the heck out of here, but you are very clearly saying, you know, this is, that I'm uncomfortable. It sounds like any rational observer hearing you make those excuses would pick up on the fact that you did not want to be there and were saying no in the way that you could under those circumstances. It wasn't that I wasn't unclear about saying no. And I think if you look terrified and you're trying to leave, that's loud enough. Weinstein didn't stop. He talked about how I was so new at this in the context of, you know, being with my first boyfriend and so on. So I, he was alluding to the fact that I had a little sexual experience or a little romantic experience for that matter. And that was a turn on for him. And he would also talk about how he had never had a Chinese girl before. Um, and he would also say, just one thrust and it'll all be over. As Rowena was working to defuse the situation, reminding him that she had a boyfriend, Weinstein took off her second pair of tights. I remember thinking, 
I only have my, in British English, only my knickers left or mm. only my underwear left and thinking there's only one barrier to him getting what he wants. Holy crap, I'm really in trouble. I've got to get out of here. She says Weinstein pushed her against the bed. He attempted to part my legs and I, uh, you know, would kept try to keep my knees together and, and try to roll off the bed and talk again about how it was getting really late and I really had to go. Rowena had one last excuse. She'd lost her cell phone that day and had asked to use her boss, Zelda Perkins' phone, for the evening shift. So that was also a good excuse because I was saying, I've got to check in with Zelda, I've got to give her a phone before the morning shift starts. Weinstein finally relented. Rowena rolled off the bed and headed to the door. And, you know, as I was leaving the room, uh, Harvey would say rather chillingly, we'll pick this up tomorrow night. What was going through your mind as you left that room? Of course you think, my God, I got away. Only just. Mm. And you think, what am I going to do to make sure this doesn't happen tomorrow night? After the break, 20 years of solitude. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. Welcome back. The next day, Weinstein took an important lunch meeting, leaving Rowena and Perkins back in his room, straightening things up. That's when I you know, start telling Zelda about the events of the night before. And somehow we both end up, the weight of what I'm saying means that we both end up on the floor. I'm sitting on one side of the barrier between the bathroom and the main room, and she's sitting on the other side of that. And I remember that we're both crying. Perkins later told me she'd been harassed by Weinstein, too. She'd hired Rowena partly because she believed Rowena wouldn't be, quote, Harvey's type. She'd hoped her warnings in that job interview would keep the new assistant safe. I mean, I was completely shattered because I never believed that he had it in him to use any form of physical force. That's Perkins in a recent BBC interview again. 
I genuinely didn't. And as far as I was concerned, Rowena was my responsibility because she was working directly for me, and I had put her in that room. She confronted Weinstein about the alleged assault. He said nothing at all had happened. And he swore on the life of his wife and his children, which was his, his best get-out-of-jail card that he used quite a lot. And did it ever cross your mind that he might be telling the truth? No. Not if you saw the girl that I had just seen. Weinstein continues to deny all allegations of, quote, non-consensual sex. Rowena didn't know what to do. They were in a foreign country on a relatively isolated island. All of their transportation was controlled by Weinstein's company. We don't have any of our own resources to kind of get back to London. And we talk about, well, should we go to the police? But how would we explain what had happened? We don't speak Italian. How will we find the police station? And we weren't even on the mainland. They decided they'd get back to London, then look for help. In the meantime, Perkins worked to protect Rowena. Zelda was incredibly sacrificial in the sense that she worked both the early shift and the night shift. She immediately reacted to make sure that I was never in a hotel room alone with Harvey again. Zelda was always there Mm -hmm. um, as a very ferocious guard dog. Those Miramax executives who saw Zelda and I for the rest of that trip report that Zelda perpetually looked furious and that I perpetually looked frightened. And I think that's probably a pretty good summary of the rest of that trip. What do you think would have happened if there hadn't been a Zelda Perkins there working with you? I don't like to think about that. I sometimes wonder if the tables were turned and I was a Zelda, I often think about what would I have said to the second assistant? Would I have protected the second assistant in the way that Zelda protected me? Would I have given more explicit warnings, less explicit warnings? How would I have trained somebody to be in that situation? And I often... I don't have any answers, but I have wondered those things over the course of the years. Rowena and Perkins returned to London and started looking for a lawyer. There was no Google, so you don't type into Google sexual assault lawyer. So Zelda did things like walk around Soho and walk into offices where there were their signage saying lawyers worked here. So she walked into various law firms and asked for representation. Eventually, they found a law firm willing to represent them and resigned, sending notice of impending legal action to Weinstein. The night Rowena and Perkins resigned, another young assistant was working in the Miramax offices in New York. Her name is Katrina Wolf. She says it was around 8.15 at night. Harvey just came walking out, kind of wandering around, kind of looking a little lost, and sort of said out loud to nobody in particular, you know, where's Steve Butensky's office? Steve Hutensky was Wolf's boss and a lawyer at Miramax. And it's, it's kind of funny because when you reach this level of power, you're not aware of where anyone sits because everybody comes to you. You summon them. So, I mean, he was footsteps from Hutensky's office, but he had no idea where it was. Wolf pointed Weinstein to Hutensky's office, and he went inside. Hutensky was responsible for a lot at Miramax. People even called him the cleaner-upper. One of his duties was dealing with employment agreements. That included keeping records on the London office, the employees in the London office, including assistants. Wolf remembers Utensky huddling with Weinstein for about 45 minutes, then calling out to give her an assignment. Steve asked me to pull the files, the employment files, for two employees in London, um, Zelda Perkins and Rowena Chu. So I pulled those, 
And shortly thereafter, I remember him saying, you know, get this guy on the phone that we were working with, an English attorney. So we called the attorney and Steve was very blunt. He said, I need to know who the best criminal defense attorney in the UK is. Utensky later told reporters this was the only sexual assault allegation he'd been aware of and that Weinstein had insisted to him that the incident was consensual. We wanted to see a police report. We thought that the wheels of justice would turn. Not long after the resignation, Rowena and Perkins's lawyers suggested they enter into discussions with Weinstein's lawyers. You know, we were really dragged kicking and screaming to the negotiating table. It wasn't what we wanted to see. And that's how these two 20-something-year-old assistants discovered another pressure that leads to silence, the legal system. They headed to the UK law firm representing Weinstein. Everything felt shrouded in secrecy. We weren't allowed to come to the offices under normal business hours. We were asked to come after 5 p.m. We were kept in the office, you know, at least on one occasion from 5 p.m. all the way through to 5 a.m. We weren't allowed a pen and paper to write anything down. We weren't allowed to make any phone calls. You know, at one point I remember discussing with Zelda and the solicitor who represented us, well, do you think we could ask for some food? And we put a request out to say, you know, we've been here a number of hours and we're pretty hungry. And they sort of sent up one sandwich, which was split between us, as a real indication of lack of care. And, you know, we were insignificant. They quickly realized just how insignificant. Both women told me they felt they had little control. The two sides of lawyers would come together in a room where they would mediate and discuss things. Zelda and I were kept separately in a conference room, and our lawyers would come back and report to us what Harvey's lawyers had said to them. The lawyers, in a separate room from Rowena and Perkins, were landing on one solution, a financial settlement tied to a non-disclosure agreement, an NDA. Well, we were horrified. And I still remember Zelda's expression. And she was adamant that we wouldn't take any money, and she called it blood money. Her revulsion was almost physical. I could deal with Harvey. He was an unpleasant, difficult man, but I had ways of dealing with him. This, again, is from that interview with Zelda Perkins. What I couldn't deal with, what I had no equipment for, was the legal system, and that was really shocking and very frightening to discover that the law couldn't help me. Back in New York, Katrina Wolf was listening in as Weinstein talked with her boss and the lawyers handling the negotiation. He was worried and anxious. Why haven't they signed yet? Why isn't... He uh, wanted that settlement signed. Oh, yes. I remember feeling like these two, you know, there's no way they have as powerful a lawyer or as much money as Harvey. They're going to get crushed. Rowena and Perkins' lawyers told me they were just giving sound legal advice. But both of the women said they felt pressured. They agreed to sign. At the end of the day, both sets of lawyers pushed us very hard towards signing the settlement. Not only pushed us very hard, they told us explicitly that we had no other choice but to sign the settlement agreement. In some ways, you can vilify, well, you know, Harvey was always a difficult person and he's a Hollywood film producer and he is the evil rapist. But what we then found when we started this process is he wasn't the only monster in the room. Rowena and Perkins did fight for provisions that they hoped would rein in Weinstein's behavior. Under the terms of the agreement, he was required to go to counseling. Miramax had to hire corporate handlers that would address harassment claims. And if Weinstein brokered another large harassment settlement, 
he'd be fired. It felt like the best they could do in a situation where it seemed increasingly clear he was escaping any real accountability. I found it staggering that at no point in the negotiations or at the signing, where there were at least a dozen lawyers in the room, nobody stuck up their hand and said, excuse me, what are we doing here, guys? Stop the clocks. This shouldn't be happening. The lawyers that he hired, our lawyers that we hired, it felt to us as though everybody acted to protect Harvey, but very few people acted to protect us as young assistants and also as victims of a sexual assault. They got 125,000 pounds each and agreed never to speak about the incident again. Not to friends, not to family, not even to a therapist. They weren't allowed to keep a full copy of the contracts themselves. Soon after the settlement, Katrina Wolf remembers being asked to print new non-disclosure agreements and get all the assistants and interns to sign them. And she remembers people who knew about the incident falling silent, like one of Perkins and Rowena's bosses who'd heard the whole story. She had had a conversation with Harvey intimating that she knew what had happened and she knew about the settlement. And it wasn't long after that that I was sent over to the accounting office to pick up a hand cut check. And I don't recall the amount, but it was definitely six figures. And I remember distinctly believing, okay, this is sort of a payoff. So you got to watch the problem disappear for Harvey. Yes. It was was upsetting that someone can just quash something like this. Meanwhile, Rowena was coming to understand yet another factor that keeps people quiet, the professional consequences. She struggled to find work. She spent job interviews dodging questions about what had happened with Weinstein. And what they'd ask you is, I see that you worked for Harvey for a month or so and that you've left his employment. Can you tell me more about that? With the burden of the NDA still fresh, I would shift uncomfortably in my seat and I would say, I really can't talk about that time of my employment. There was a clause in the contract that said if she or Perkins ran into this problem, they could call up Steve Hutensky and ask for help. Finally, out of work and struggling with student loans, Rowena called. And there was an insistence that I come back to work at Mirax in some shape or form. And again, it was painful and harrowing and it brought up memories that I didn't want it to. She demanded a job that would never put her in the same room as Weinstein, all the way in Hong Kong, acquiring Asian content for the US market. Wolf, listening in on the negotiations, remembers how insistent Rowena was. I heard her negotiating with Steve directly for her title for the Hong Kong job that she was getting. And I just remember being struck by how strong she sounded, and I was very impressed. You know, I didn't even know at the time that she was so young, but she was really holding firm. Perkins later told me that Weinstein shouted at her in a hotel lobby that a male movie star had told him, this was how you do it. This was how you shut up women with allegations of abuse. You hire them back. He told Perkins that by hiring Rowena back, he felt he'd won. And I knew that that's why I was getting pulled back in. That must have felt devastating. It's horrifying and suffocating. And they didn't give me any other choice. Much like with the NDA, we didn't get another choice. In Hong Kong, Rowena felt isolated. She struggled with depression. She attempted suicide twice. After two years, she left Hong Kong and the film industry for good. 
And for the next 20 years, she lived in constant fear that the story would resurface and upend her life all over again. I don't think there's a person who's signed a settlement agreement with Harvey Weinstein that doesn't spend the rest of their lives looking over their shoulder. For 20 years, as different journalists circled the Weinstein story, Rowena declined to talk. Roughly every five years, somebody would find me at my place of work or my residence, and they would ask the question that I had been dreading, which is, didn't you used to work for Harvey Weinstein? Things really came to a head in 2017. Zelda Perkins agreed to talk to me, and that's when Rowena found herself huddled in her bathroom, whispering into the phone, wondering what to do about calls from me and other reporters. I mean, nobody knew in October 2017 what sort of story this would be. Nobody knew whether there'd be public sympathy for Harvey. Nobody knew whether the victims would themselves be villainized. There were still all those personal pressures. She hadn't told her parents or her husband. And she'd come to know the professional consequences of speaking all too well. Even when the story was published in The New Yorker and The New York Times, I still didn't believe I should talk. And seeing other women speak and the chaos it could sometimes plunge their lives into made her feel even more conflicted. And seeing some of the real-life stories of what happened to Zelda. So I saw that she was approached by a Daily Mail journalist in the field as she fed her sheep. <laughs> I saw that there were people who showed up at a hamlet, that her village was ringed with journalists. And it wasn't just Perkins. I live in the same town as Christine Blasey Ford. Blasey Ford, of course, is the professor who accused Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh of an attempted assault while they were in high school. Kavanaugh has denied the allegations. And so, ironically, almost nine months after the Harvey Weinstein story broke, you know, I was able to see what happened to Dr. Ford. Again, you know, scores of journalists hounded her for her story. She left her place of residence. She moved into hotel rooms with her children. She had death threats. Since October 2017, 87 women have come forward with allegations of sexual misconduct against Harvey Weinstein. A lot of them have talked about the reasons why they didn't do so earlier. Like Katie and Noble. The reason why I said nothing for so long because I thought if I ever wanted an opportunity in this industry, how could I ever small me to speak of this man, to say he has been inappropriate with me, people would. Look at me, this, who the hell is this girl? And Natasha Malti. I talked to somebody in the industry about it, uh, and I was told to shut up. And Louisette Geis. I knew if I said anything that he would have a ton of lawyers on my back, and no one would trust me over him. And Lauren Sivan. Truth be told, I've told this story to many, many people over the years. I never came out publicly with it because I didn't see any upside to that and Lauren O'Connor. When you're positioned publicly, whether you choose to go public or are made public, you are thereafter defined by a single instant. You are called a victim or a survivor. You are uh, called a whistleblower or complicit. You have to then operate through the rest of your life. Every, every time you walk into a room, you, whether it's a business meeting, a first date, or making a new friend, you have to assume that, that that one moment of time in your life precedes you, that someone has already decided who you are. And there are others who still haven't decided to come forward. Once your story's out there, you can't take it back. It's no longer yours. 
You think you can control it, but actually it grows legs and walks off of its own accord, you know, much like a toddler. People will comment about it on Facebook, they'll tweet about it, journalists will write about it. Certain angles of the story will become more prevalent and they'll grow in the media and other angles of the story that you wish had more prominence don't get the light of day. For Rowena, it took two years of thinking. Ultimately, the realization that Weinstein may have struck again during her years of silence weighed heavily in her decision. There are several moments in the whole story where you feel like the bottom falls out of your world. And I think when I realized that in October 2017, that in fact the work that we had done in 98, we'd sacrificed our film careers, we'd sacrificed our own sanity, and we thought that we had signed a watertight agreement meaning that Harvey would not be able to assault other women. Imagine finding out then that there were two decades of people who'd been subject to these types of settlement agreements, not only around our time, before our time, and most harrowingly, after our time. And a variety of factors helped her feel it was the right time for her to talk, including a long, slow process of connecting with other women with allegations. So I very gently went to this one gathering where I could tell my story in what I knew would be a supportive environment. And at Perkins' invitation, testifying anonymously in front of UK politicians. Zelda encouraged me to go and testify at the House of Commons Select Committee on the subject of sexual harassment in the workplace. And then this fall, she told her story in full to Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey of the New York Times, and even on morning television. Here's the thing, as I understand it, Rowena, you, you signed a fairly ironclad non-disclosure agreement and you've decided to break that NDA this morning. Um, why? It's been a long journey. Um, so when it's not always the right time for any given person to speak, but for Rowena, it feels right. I think there is a drive to tell the story in a way where you think you can change something for good. If you see changes in law and regulation happen, then you feel that this horrendous story, which has been one of a fair amount of personal sacrifice, isn't for nothing. That there's a greater good and a public purpose behind what you're doing. Harvey Weinstein's criminal trial in New York on charges related to sexual assault and rape begins January 6th. But on the civil front, Weinstein and the board of his former company have reportedly brokered a deal, a proposed $25 million settlement with more than 30 women. There'd be no admission of guilt, much of the money would go to the attorneys, and it would end almost all the sexual misconduct lawsuits against Weinstein. The Catch and Kill podcast is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and me, Ronan Farrow. It's produced by Sophie Bridges, Sharina Ong, Janelle Pfeiffer, Unjin Lee, and Laura Dodd. Our senior producer is Eric Menel. Editing by Joel Lovell, Max Linsky, and Jonathan Menhivar. Pineapple's executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Production support from Maddie Sprung-Kaiser and Emily Becker. Fact-checking by Sean Lavery. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions, First Com, and Marmoset. Special thanks this week to Reed Black and Vinegar Hill Sound in Brooklyn. We're going to be off for the holidays, but we will be back in January with more episodes. The first of them is about the equally complex journey of being one of the first to go public in a story like this. And at one point, the one of the most bizarre tactics was he said, have you seen my wife? And I said, 
I've seen pictures of her. She's stunning. And he goes, well, I got her. As if to leverage the beauty of his wife to convince me to sleep with him. This is all based on reporting I did for my book, Catch and Kill, available where you buy your books and as an audiobook. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in January. If you, a friend, or a loved one are having thoughts of suicide, you can contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255.